is Parrot Talk. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. RestoringTheFaith.com Good morning. It is Monday. It is the 20th day of the 11th month of the year of our Lord, 2023. This is Parrot Talk here on the Crusade Channel. And this is live talk radio. The way it should be. Always on air, always online, and always happy to be with you. I am so excited to share the pandemonium, the excitement from the streets of Argentina over the weekend. There was a shock election. I mean, I'm not shocked, but there was a shock election result. Okay, so basically they're just saying that, uh, like, <laughs> yeah, like Sergio Massa, the other candidate, is uh, actually like a, a drug addict uh, because of the videos that uh, they've been going around of him acting very um, weird. <laughs> okay. Let's say. So this is this is pandemonium. Mass throngs of people in the streets of Argentina celebrating overnight last night, Sunday night, the victory of Javier Milei. Javier Milei, the new uh, Trump-like president of Argentina. Already, he is receiving so much hate and vitriol. He's on the top of Drudge Report. Everybody is upset with this guy. Because why? Well, he denies climate change. And he vows the end of Argentina's decline. Look, Argentina, uh, Argentina has been historically one of the most liberal countries in Latin America. And this is not a new phenomenon. This is, this is a, a long-standing part of their history. One of the books that I really think is interesting about sort of the Western Hemisphere is a book by Charles Kalum called Puritan Empire. And I know some of Charles's books are in the Founders Trading Post. I'm not sure if this one is, but you should check it out. Go to shop.mychurch.com. Look for this book. I don't know if it's in there. It may be. But in the book, Charles uh, documents the various sort of nationalist, Republican movements in Latin America, who was fomenting them, who was financing them, when they happened, what their reaction was to. And in the story of the great Habsburg monarch, wh- whom Mexico pined for, begged for, for years, when he came across the ocean to, to claim the crown and rule Mexico, the, the, uh, the empire of Mexico, Emperor Maximilian II was his name, he was met with um, true love from his people. And of course, the United States was behind not only the, the financing, but stoking the Republican Freemasonic uprising in Mexico. We were sending Protestant pastors down there to destroy the faith, setting up Freemasonic lodges, and then ultimately running guns. You know, we never really, we never found anybody that we liked quite as much as Juarez. We really liked that guy. You know why? Because he hated the Catholic Church, and he was also willing to just kind of give Mexico stuff to, the, to America. He was bribable. Man, what a good guy. We like him. Anyway, we ran enough guns and fomented enough uprisings that Maximilian II was executed um, just a couple years into his reign. 
In other places in Latin America, such as in Peru, for example, in Peru, when American-backed Republican gangsters overthrew or, or killed the king and engineered an election, the first thing that happened was the people of Peru elected a man who promised to bring back the king. <laughs> so they didn't like that. They killed him. Then they had a second election, a special election, and guess what? The monarchist party won again. So at that point, they were like, okay, we can't even fake having elections in Peru. But in Argentina, Argentina was different. The Argentinians took this nationalist, socialist idea, this republicanism, very, very seriously. And they were always out on the leading edge. In fact, it was Argentinians who were being expatriated into places like Peru or Mexico to try to put down the monarchical uprisings, especially in the countrysides. You know, today in the United States, there's this rural versus urban thing going on. If you live in the downtown, the big cities, the urban core in the United States, if you're a young professional who has learned to code and you have your emotional support animal, you have exactly nothing in common with uh, someone from one of the red counties, just one county over, but somebody who works at a different type of job with his hands, with his truck, supporting a family, close to the land, etc. It was the same type of situation in Latin America right around the founding of the Monroe Doctrine, actually. When Monroe was saying that, you know what? Europeans may not come and intervene into the Western Hemisphere anymore. That's the do uh, interfering in the Western Hemisphere is now the exclusive domain of the United States of America. Only we get to decide what happens to our southern neighbors. You don't. Right around that time, there was an urban versus rural divide. And in the rural areas, which are more normal people, less corrupt, more virtuous, well, they were clamoring for a European prince. They were hoping to maintain their connection to the motherland, i.e. Spain. And they begged Spain to send a prince, and ultimately the Habsburg family acquiesced to that. So it was Argentinians who were being imported from Buenos Aires and other places to foment nationalism, republicanism, Freemasonry, and to try to stop these pro-crown, pro-altar uprisings. Because in the minds of the peasants, the simple ones, the unsophisticated rural Mexicans. In the minds of the unsophisticated rural Mexicans, there was a connection, a deep and profound connection between altar and crown. Altar and crown worked together and belonged together. This was known and accepted in most places for all times, right? Separation of church and state is and always has been a grave error. It's not even something that Thomas Jefferson actually advocated. It's a twisting of his words by the 1947 Everson Court. I think I've told you this, right? Well, very briefly, quick history review. In 1802, Thomas Jefferson, <coughs> excuse me. In 1802, Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter 
to the Baptists of Danbury, Connecticut, who were very concerned. They were very concerned about sort of other denominations around the United States who were taking power in various places. And they were concerned about, um, well, the the power of the state being used to wield, being wielded against them. And so they implored the president at the time for his assurance of their freedom, their religious freedom. And he replied that there would be a wall of separation between church and state in response to their plea. And the context of those famous nine words or seven words, however many words it is, is that the wall of separation between church and state exists to protect the church from encroachment by the state. In other words, for the freedom and exaltation of the church. Now, that's not the true church. Danbury Baptists are hardly the true church. Founded back then, in 1802, or in the late 1700s, fake religion, apostates, schismatics, heretics, whatever you want to call them. But, nevertheless... The original intent of Jefferson was never to say that separation of church and state means that the church can't enter the state. It was the opposite. It was that that the state cannot enter the arena of the church. It was to protect the church, not to protect the state. Nevertheless, though, however, comma, Freemasonic twistings of words is uh, perennial. And what you had in 1947 was the height of their power, really. Think about 1947. Think about the mid-40s. The Freemasons really had triumphed. The New World Order was definitively defined. The United States was at its head. We had dropped nukes on other nations. We had won a world war. The New Deal was in full effect. Socialism came to the United States. The presidency of the United States had been strengthened, redefined. Not since Lincoln had such structural change to society and to government happened. And these people knew that they had achieved ultimate power and could do whatever they wanted. And so the wall of separation between church and state was codified by the Supreme Court. And it was accepted that the understanding in 1947, just what uh, less than 150 years after the letter was written, the words were twisted in Freemasonic style. And now we live in a culture where it is believed wrongly that the church cannot, must not, interfere with the state. It's the opposite. The state cannot, must not, interfere with the church. COVID-1984 would never have happened in the United States the way it did, at least with, the, with respect to the church locking down and complying with the state, if this misunderstood, misunderstanding was uh, not a thing. But unfortunately... We have weak leaders all the way around, weak ecclesiastical leaders, weak lay leaders, weak governors, even to sanctimonious locked down. And we can never, ever forget that, and we can never, ever forgive until they apologize. Okay, fine, you're right. Technically, we can forgive, as in we can let go of our resentment. That's fine. I am willing to dispense myself of the resentment I have for church and state officials. But I am not willing to forgive in terms of forgetting what they did or presuming that they have anything other than nefarious and truly wicked, diabolical plans for me and you. 
So from a moral point of view, fine. I can say, forgive us as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. That's fine. I forgive to the extent that I must. I have released my resentment for the actions, but I still hold them in contempt. All of them. Every single one of them from the top down. Many Americans still have a lot of love for their local congressmen, their local leaders of some kind. I don't. I have none. I have absolutely zero love or tolerance in my body for any of them. From the mayor, from the, from the alderman, to the presidency, and to the power behind the presidency, the Rothschilds. I hold them all, each and every one of them, individually, collectively, in contempt. And I think that's the only rational position. And that's why Javier Malay won in a, I I don't know, I wouldn't call it a landslide victory. Look, if somebody in the United States won 55 to 45 in a runoff, we would probably refer to that as a landslide. We used to have landslides in this country, like when Ronald Reagan carried 49 states in the 1980s. Nonetheless, I think we can call it a decisive victory, considering the fact that I have no idea how free and fair the elections are in Argentina. I'm sure that the, that the leftists there use the same leftist techniques that are used around the world. And in the United States, I'm sure there was ballot harvesting, ballot stuffing. So for him to have overcome the machine, so to speak, the leftist machine in Argentina is in itself shocking, interesting. Now, here's my real take on uh, on Javier Malay. I don't think you're going to like this, but this is why you listen to the program. This is why... Every single day at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time, Monday through Friday, you're here. You're here because you want me to tell you the truth, or at least what I think the truth is. And here's what I think the truth is about Javier Malay. I think he's an eccentric man. I think he's a Trump-like figure. I think he strikes a chord with the people. But like Trump, he is troubled. He is vulgar. He is crass. Some of the things he says in Spanish are unrepeatable in the English language. Even in the age of Trump, you can't say them in polite company. The way that he describes liberalism. Now, he's not wrong to do so. If this were not a radio station with children listening, I would probably describe liberalism in some of the same terms. You know, you see, some people think that vulgarity in and of itself is sinful. I think you should read <laughs> the actual writings of some of the doctors of the church. For example, in the, in the, in the English Counter-Reformation, the uh, various ways in which Protestantism was compared to different versions of fecal matter by men who we regard as doctors of the church. It, well, they used words that I can't use on this radio station. Now, I do think I, I get one mulligan per show. And it's got to be good, well-placed, and you have to be well-informed that it's coming. So, should that need arise today, I will let you know. But dropping the four-letter words casually on live television, this is uh, one, of the, one of the ways in which Javier Malay is a, a vulgar and crass man. And there's a four-letter word that he has used 
that in the even in English in America, I don't know about other Anglo-speaking countries, but I know that in America, this word, which is a way to refer to women, and it is a four-letter word, this is a highly, highly offensive word. And this is part of his uh, daily repertoire in his description of liberalism, socialism. And again, he is not wrong. The level of hatred that he has for the failed systems that have failed Argentina, it is appropriate. It is proportionate. Argentina has gone from one of the top economies in the world to basically down the toilet. Inflation is through the roof. Unemployment is through the roof. He is, a, in some ways, a reactionary to the failed systems which have brought Argentina to her knees. That being said, I don't find his position, just like Donald Trump, I don't find his positions to be extremely counter-revolutionary, reactionary. He's obviously in love with Enlightenment philosophy. And so, he can only go so far in his so-called conservatism. They are basically acting like he is a little Franco because he doesn't believe in climate change. He doesn't believe in woke ideology. He's pro-life. And he's pro-family. These are not radical ideas... These are not the type of ideas that should garner the level of fear and dread, vitriol that they have that they have earned. But that is how he's being treated right now. It is shocking that the historically socialist nation of Argentina, you know, for the last 100 150 years They've been the leading, one of the leading socialist dumpsters in, uh, well, in Latin America. It is surprising and noteworthy that he won. But my final comparison to Trump is this, besides the hair. I do think there is a better than zero chance, and frankly, a number approaching 100%, in terms of probabilities, I think there is a better than zero, if not close to 100% chance that many of his campaign promises will go unfulfilled. This is just how these things go. We got Trump, but we didn't get the wall. We got Trump, but we still got the swamp. We got Trump, and we got Gayer. More gays in more places. I think the same thing's going to happen in Argentina. In Texas, we would say all hat, no cattle. Or maybe all sizzle, no steak. I fear that Javier Malay is really, he's no reactionary. He's no counter-revolutionary. He's no friend of uh, the, the cause, truly. And his principles, so-called, are basically Enlightenment principles, which we should rightly despise. And I just don't see that he'll be able to fulfill his litany of campaign promises, including the elimination of so many, so much of government and so many government agencies. Hopefully, he can do it. Hopefully, I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, I'll be. I will. I'll happily be wrong. It's just that what is truly happening, in my view, is that the, the window of acceptable ideas, which we call the Overton window, is shifting. They're shifting it on purpose. How, what do I mean by that? Well, if Javier Malay is now considered 
to be basically a Nazi, then how can any idea to the right of him survive? If basically being pro-life and pro-family and challenging the climate hoax is now considered to be a Nazi, what would, uh, what would those people think of you and I? What would they think of the Crusade Channel? What would they think of what we stand for? You see, this is a very clever way for them to redefine the political debate in Latin America. If you want to be hardcore, hard right, scary, we may need to pass laws to make sure this never happens again, dictator level scary. Well, the definition of that now is Javier Malay, pro-life, pro-family, anti-climate hoax. It's really scary, though. He's, he's pro-gun. That's, that's probably the part that scares them the most. That's probably the part that makes him like Hitler. He's, he's, he's uh, Latin America's version of Hitler, Mussolini, and Franco all tied together. The press is going nuts. Even the Catholic press is going nuts. Mainstream Catholic press. They're very upset about this. Very upset about Javier Malay. But do you see the, how they're all complicit in the redefinition of the Overton window here? Now suddenly, if you do support the, a version of the Second Amendment, a Latin American version of the Second Amendment, or more or less, if you support personal property and the use of force to protect your personal property, that's basically what it comes down to. It's called the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. Steal what? Property. From whom? Its owner. Okay? The Eighth Commandment gives us private property rights. You can own stuff. It came down from God. You can, you must own stuff. And if people try to steal it from you, you can do what you need to do to defend your property. Well, if you just believe in the Eighth Commandment, like evidently Javier Malay does, you are basically a Nazi. And so once you get the synthesis as a result of the thesis and antithesis merging together, once you define the hard right as being pro-gun, and then the hard left as being, I don't know, what is, what is the way hard left there? It's like, not only should we seize all the guns from all the people, but we should only give guns to criminals, and the criminals should shoot you, and you should say thank you. Then you get the synthesis of a highly regulated socialist welfare state. And that's the sort of blended average that they're going for. The median between those two things. And that's what is happening with the Overton window. It is shifted in Argentina and Latin America at large. And now the de definition of a crazy, wild-eyed, wild-haired, freakish Nazi guy is more or less someone who's about as conservative as, like, your typical GOP member of Congress in the United States. I mean, yeah, he's more outspoken, and yeah, he's like says some stuff, but I don't find him to be that much more conservative than like your typical boomer GOP congressman in the United States of America. One final note on Javier Malay and what makes this um, election so interesting. 
He's had some antipathy for the man commonly known as Francis. He has referred to him as a communist and worse. And the man in white has threatened that he will never visit Argentina if the people elect Javier Malayi. This was a very stupid thing to say because <laughs> now you're just giving people a reason to vote for the guy. We don't want you coming back. Incidentally, he's not wanted. Bergoglio is so hated in his home country, he's despised. The people don't actually want him to come back. This was his way of electing Javier Malay. In reality, this was his way of getting him into office. If you guys elect him, I'm never coming back. Uh, we don't want you to come back. You're a Peronist. We're done with Peronism. Um, it's an interesting thing there. Now, the other reason why Frank the Tank really doesn't want to go back to Argentina is it would be embarrassing. It would be embarrassing that Frank the Tank, the first Latin American president, the or, uh, president, Pope, so-called, the first one from the New World can't even go back to his home country and draw a crowd because people literally hate him. And they don't hate him on, cons on like conservative versus liberal ground. They don't hate him for ideological things. Like in the United States, anyone who's a practicing Christian of any kind, not just Catholics, but anyone who is conservative and, and serious about their faith in the United States really has a, has a tough time with the majority of the Frank the Tank pontificate, or anti-pontificate, however you see it. But they don't hate him down there but based on those terms, on ideological terms. Their hatred for him is personal. Like, it has to do with how he was as an archbishop. And what a, what a crazy, despotic prince of the church... He was. Uh, so that's that's actually that's the real reason why he won't go back. And unfortunately, he has hitched his uh, return to his home country, or lack thereof, to the uh, the whims of the people, and the people have spoken. This segment of the program is brought to you by the Epoch Times. You can go to crusadechannel.com slash epoch and you can join the Epoch Times and get one full month free. You can watch their documentary called Police State with uh, Dinesh D'Souza, Dan Bongino, and Nick Searcy. Police State is a documentary only available on Epoch Times. You can go to crusadechannel.com slash epoch, join for one dollar you can check out that. They've got others, too. I've told you about No Farmers, No Food. They've got the January 6th tapes, the hidden border crisis, and Flatline, America's hospital crisis, amongst others in their documentaries. These look good. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to crusadechannel.com slash epoch. I'm going to pay my dollar, and I'm going to watch binge watch all five of these documentaries and then I'm going to cancel. No, I'm not going to do that. Don't do that. I'm just saying you can get access to all five. Oh, there's one called Gender Transformation. See, they got a bunch. They have the Unseen Crisis. Leaving California, the untold story. The Shadow State, the first documentary on ESG. The Final War, the 100-year plot to defeat America. Border Deception. The real story of January 6th. Okay, I know what I'm doing over the long weekend. And I think you do too. Don't go anywhere. Short segment on the back end of this shameless profit break. Paratalk here on the Crusade Channel. Live talk radio the way it should be. We'll be right back. Hey, I just met you. Heard you're a groomer. 
So here's your millstone. Good luck, loser. It's hard to look right when you're a pervert. So take your millstone. No kids will get hurt. Gotta get these fools into the bottom of the ocean. Down in the ocean. Alongside that Titan sub. Gotta get these guys down to the bottom of the ocean. Throw them in the ocean. With that Titanic sub. Welcome back to the program. Talking about millstones here. You know, I don't always in the second segment. I know the lead-in is this is the groomer song. I love the groomer song. I've got another idea for one too. And if you have an idea, send me an email at restoringthefaithmedia@gmail.com. This is Mike Parrot. I'm the humble host here. A Parrot Talk on the Crusade Channel Live Talk Radio. The way it should be. Fast and Furious second segment here. Oftentimes, I do like to use the groomer song as a lead-in to you know, like the global homo groomer thing that's happening in these United States and around the world. And sometimes I just use the song and we talk about whatever we want to in the second half of the show. But I'm going to ask you a question in this second segment of the show, and it's going to be a troubling question. The question is, why does a rabbi own Pornhub? Pornhub is the largest purveyor of smut in North America and it is currently owned by a Jewish rabbi. Solomon Friedman is the new owner of Pornhub. He is a Jewish attorney and rabbi. His private equity firm took over MindGeek, which is the umbrella company of virtually every porn site. He vowed to save Pornhub from ruin and make it a better place. We have Solomon Friedman in studio right now. He is one of Canada's top defense attorneys. Uh, He's also co-founder, right? Can we call you co-founder, owner, vice president of compliance at Ethical Capital Partners? That's right. If you didn't know, Ethical Capital Partners just bought out MindGeek, former owners of all of your favorite websites. Now, MindGeek are still the owners of all your favorite websites, right. but we're the owners of MindGeek. Which owns? <laughs> Pornhub, YouPorn, RedTube. We got a list. Yeah, a bunch of other ones you pretend that you don't know. Um, <laughs> your entire search history. <laughs> we have your Solomon Friedman in studio. <clears throat> Solomon Friedman, your entire search history. He is, um, he is the proud owner of it. Now, Pornhub has, uh, for years, been posting... Um, videos where 14 year old girls are savagely raped by adult men and but besides the evils of pedophilia being posted on the website there's just the evil of pornography in general so what did rabbi friedman mean by making it a place for good well before pornhub came under fire for profiting off of rape videos Anyone could post a video. Under Friedman's watch, users are now required to be verified. Well, what does that mean? What Friedman doesn't want you to know is that people starring in these videos don't actually have to be verified. Verification is just a license to continue posting rape and child porn. They have hundreds of, Pornhub does, in-house moderators. Imagine that for a career. I'm, an, I'm a pornography moderator. To view the porn before it goes live. Who verifies these moderators? Imagine spending an entire work week to verify content on Pornhub. This is disgusting. What kind of person does that? There are all kinds of physiological dangers to pornography. To include brain damage... Uh, viscerated dopamine receptors, skewed reality on sexual relations, social isolation, emotional numbness. It will also send your soul to hell, just to be clear. It sends your soul to hell. Much like abortion and usury, pornography is a Jewish sacrament. Whatever the Bible forbids, the Talmud permits. That's the Jewish mindset, and it permeates Christian society. These are not my words, by the way. 
Why is it called Mind Geek? Think about that. Mind Geek. They know what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. Also, before we continue about Solomon Friedman, it's important to know this. ILO, formerly MindGeek, is primarily involved in internet pornography. They have a long list of porn sites, which has belonged to them. Safe to say, they monopolize the porn industry. Okay? I'm not going to list all these websites. It's a lot of them. They use an algorithm to keep users hooked. The algorithm is quote-unquote unparalleled. Believe it or not, this has even been used as a weapon system. The Jews, right now, as we speak, are pumping pornography into the television sets of anybody in Palestine. They don't care if you're a child in southern Palestine. All three of the TV networks there have been hijacked by the by Israel and now 5 year olds are watching hardcore porn on their televisions quote israeli troops who have taken over three palestinian television stations in ramallah are broadcasting porno- pornographic movies and programs in hebrew irate residents say soldiers occupied the offices of three local television and radio stations on saturday morning and started broadcasting the porn clips on saturday afternoon on the Al-Watan, Amwaj, and Al-Shirak channels, the residents said. Quote, I have six children at home. They have nowhere to go with what's going on here and can't even watch TV, Rima, a Palestinian mother, said. It's not healthy. I think the Israelis want to mess with our young men's minds. Anita, a mother of three, complained about the deliberate psychological damage caused by these broadcasts. But wait, it gets better. Introducing the notorious Ruben Sturman, a.k.a. the Walt Disney of porn. Sturman is the son of an immigrant Russian Jew, grew up in Cleveland's east side. He served in the Army Air Force during World War II and then went on to study at Case Western Reserve University, graduating in 1948, before starting his own business selling comic books from his car. Ruben Sturman is a very, very interesting one. In the 1960s, Sturman started selling magazines with sexual content, a product he discovered could make profits and outmatch anything that could be achieved by selling any kind of comic book. He managed to avoid uh, prosecution by a combination of counter-lawsuits, shady business practices, and using 20 different aliases to protect his identity. (laughs) He also was friendly with the Italian-American mafia, the Gambino family. That always helps. It gets even more disturbing. Now meet Michael Coolidge, founder and chairman of Monarchy Distribution, OG Studios... Ascense Films. All of all three of these companies are focused on quote unquote adult entertainment. He is also a well, a Russian Jew. Michael Kulich admitted that Ruben Sturman was his god was the was his godfather of porn. Kulich stated, quote, Jews in the adult industry, there's a lot of them. The adult industry was pretty much founded by Jews. Basically, in the early 1900s, the German-Jewish immigrants came in, and when they were trying to get into different industries, there was a lot of anti-Semitism where they couldn't get into normalized work. So they gravitated towards the porn industry because it's kind of the seedier cousin of the Hollywood industry, which had already been controlled by the Jews. Basically, they took it over. Founded by the Jews, they gravitated towards the porn industry because it's like kind of the seedier cousin of the Hollywood industry, which had already been controlled by the Jews. Um, and basically, they pretty much just took it over. The godfather of the modern day porn industry, his name is Ruben Starman, um, who was actually an Orthodox Jew. He owned over 200 bookstores all around the country. He's actually my godfather. 
<laughs> what the Jews did pretty much was they revolutionized the adult industry and made it their own. Um, so there was no space for anti-Semitism, and they basically controlled everything. But back in the 80s, the only way you could get pornography was to go through someone like Ruben Sturman, and he controlled you know, all of his stores and all the stores that, um, that he didn't own. They had, actually had to pay him a tax um, to carry his product. Ruben Sturman, actually, eventually he died in prison. Um, not from, they tried to get him from obscenity back in the 80s, which was a big thing. Um, and uh, it actually still is a risen obscenity rest today. Um, but uh, he eventually died in prison because of tax evasion, because he didn't want to pay taxes. Tax evasion! Back in the 70s, <laughs> the majority of the male porn performers were Jewish. And the majority of the female performers were Roman Catholic. So all the business owners are, are pretty much Jewish or have Jewish ties or for, at some point worked for a Jew. Okay, this is, this is a Jewish pornographer admitting that the Jews started, founded, revolutionized pornography. Did you catch what he said about, the, about Roman Catholics? The majority of the female performers were Roman Catholic. This quote-unquote fulfills every fantasy every Jewish boy ever had. In other words, to, for Jews to rape Catholics. Do you understand? Now let's meet Al Goldstein. He's known for helping normalize hardcore pornography in the United States of America. Goldstein was born in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, to a... Jewish family, Goldstein. Al Goldstein ha started numerous pornography magazines. Um, I can't... I can't actually name these magazines here on the show. The titles are too obscene. In 1989, he offered $1 million to assassinate Ayatollah Khomeini for going against him and his sick empire. Quote, the only reason that Jews are in porn is that we think Christ sucks. Catholicism sucks. We don't believe in authoritarianism. Pornography thus becomes a way of defiling Christian culture, penetrating the hearts of American mainstream. When asked if he believed in God, he said, quote, I believe in me. I'm God. Screw God. I am the super being. I am your God. Admit it. That's Al Goldstein, the founder of Screw Magazine, amongst others. This is them admitting that the reason they do this, besides the profit motive, is the cultural motive. Now, this goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And the rabbit hole goes deeper. I just wanted to... A couple of you have asked me why I keep saying that uh, our, our Hebrew friends are the founders of pornography or the leading purveyors of pornography. And I wanted to show you some receipts. I wanted to prove the point to you definitively. These are our greatest allies. They're... they're they're pumping porn into Palestine right now as a weapon system. Let me tell you something. If pornography is a weapon system, and it is, then what they've done to us is an act of war. And it should be treated as such. And in a just society, in a real country, this Jewish weapon system, which has been unleashed upon you, your mind, your consciousness, your imagination, your senses, which has been unleashed upon your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, this would be treated like an act of war. In fact, it's even more grave than that, ladies and gentlemen. The deliberate 
use of pornography to defile a human person is far, far worse than just shooting them dead. It's far, far worse. Our Lord warned us about this. Don't, don't fear the man who can kill your body. Fear the man who can kill your soul. We are in a war right now, and the government of the United States of America, the USSA, is complicit. No, they are enemy combatants in the war. And the war is against you, and the war is for your soul. The Jewish pornographers, starting from this rabbi in Canada that owns all the porn, and the United States government are in cahoots with each other to destroy not only your body, but your soul. I say it again and again, and it gives me no pleasure. Your government hates you. They want your soul damned in hell for all eternity. That's what they want. We are the great Satan. That is an appropriate title for this country. And those who see this clearly for what it is, know that there is only one answer. And it's not a political solution, ladies and gentlemen. There's no voting these people out. How do you vote this rabbi in Canada out of the United States? Thank you so much for listening to the show. I hope you can get through Mondays, the case of the Mondays. It's going to be a short week, Thanksgiving week. Something very interesting tomorrow for you on banking and the American Revolution. Can't wait to talk to you. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. Have a nice day. This is Parrot Talk. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. Restoringthefaith.com.